Okay, perhaps we ought to make a start. <clears throat> okay, I'm just going to try and pick up some of the, the threads from last night. Now you've heard, obviously, Rob speak about it, and myself speak about it, you've been doing the practice of looking at the three characteristics. Impermanence, Dukkha, and of course, Anatta. Well tonight what I want to pick up on the thread is of Anatta in more detail. Of looking at this idea of not-self. That is so important and which in fact when you start to look even at and examine the teaching of Shunyatas, it's found in the Mahayana traditions which permeates Tibetan Buddhism and Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, founded primarily on the work of Nagarjuna. Then really you're talking about an extrapolation of the teaching of Anatta. It's the logical conclusion to which it comes ultimately. So it's important to understand the Buddha's teaching about not-self uh, and to really understand its profundity. The basic movement that the Buddha is using is taking something that appears prima facie um, on face value to be unitary and showing that the notion of the self that we have in fact is compounded. Any meaningful talk about what it means to be a self has to include a number of different factors. And if we take this to its logical conclusion, we can keep breaking it down and breaking it down and breaking it down and showing that there is not anything fixed underlying this. Now before I start off on that, that's where we're going, that's the sort of area we're going to go. And many of you will have heard this teaching many, many times before. Um, hopefully I can shed a bit more light on it uh, in slightly different ways. But I want to start off with some practical considerations. Because from what I said last night is the Buddha's teaching is always directly practical. It's not out of mere intellectual edification. If we think it's out of intellectual edification, we're often just wrong. Um, as I gave it an example last night, the Buddha chastises somebody who thinks he's just got it intellectually. You know, he chastises Ananda. Um, so he's pointing directly to the practical nature of this teaching. Because understanding this and really embodying this understanding everything changes. You know, the whole, our whole way of being in the world is radically changed, radically altered. So, let's start with the problem, the self. It's a problem. Um, and one of the things I don't know if it ever struck you existentially is it's lonely being a self, <laughs> isn't it? It's quite difficult being a self. I mean, usually at this point, if I have a board in front of me, and some of you have seen me do this, I will write the first-person pronoun up in English. It works in English. It doesn't work in many other languages, but it does work in English. Look how lonely it is, that little I, all on its own. It's all stick-like, and great difficulty of trying to keep itself together. You know, so, actually... A tremendous amount of dukkha is generated from this act of trying to be a self in day-to-day -day existence. Just trying, literally keeping yourself together a lot of the time. Remember Catherine Mansfield, I gave you a quote from last night. You know, looking inside and finding yourself as being kind of a hotel with a hundred guests in it. Um, trying to keep them, stop them from being rowdy for one thing, is quite difficult. 
you know, trying to keep the peace <laughs> amongst all those conflicting voices that can be there for us. So in looking at this problem of the nature of the self, we're looking at something which generates and causes this immense pain. Sets us off on a search, actually, through life to find some chimerical, mythical object that never was there in the first place. My true self. Yeah. What is a true self as opposed to an untrue one? I've never quite figured that one out for myself. You know, searching for this one unchanging facet of your personality which is there forever. I think it would make us terribly boring, for one thing. Um, if we possess this true self. So we're off in search of this mythological object. That's the sad part about human existence a lot of the time. Searching for some degree of individuality, some, something that differentiates us from others and something which we can truly call our own. It's, from the Buddhist perspective, it's all illusion. It's all an illusion, this search for the something underlying the whole of our process, in other words. So we're set off on this journey from a very early stage in life. You know, right from being children, we're projected into this journey of trying to be ourselves, find our true selves, be true to ourselves, and there's all these kind of expressions that we have in English which really express this search for something. As I say, from the Buddhist perspective, this is a mythological search. It's the search for, I don't know, the Holy Grail that doesn't actually exist in this case. Now, there's much, much misinterpretation and misunderstanding of this teaching. And I gave you one little snippet of it last night. We're not talking about no self. You know, I still see that repeated again and again and again in books. You know, that the Buddha taught that there was no self. Now, I say that particularly because that's literally to get the wrong end of the stick about it. And it falls very much into bipolar thinking that we have in the West in particular. Uh, the idea either something is or it isn't. Yeah. Um, it's actually there in Western thought as a law of logic. Yeah. It's called the law of excluded middle. <laughs> what is Buddhism? Well, what does the Buddha teach? He teaches a middle way. You know, he's saying things aren't as simple as either it is or it isn't. And this goes back, and again, forgive me for those who have heard me say this before, but it does go back to something very, very important. And I alluded to it again last night when I started off and saying, it's not what, but how. Because the Buddha is always asking questions in a very, very particular way. He's not interested in whatness, isness of anything. He's interested in how things operate. Very clearly this is the case. The classic example in Western thought of somebody who's asking about what something is, is um, Socrates and Plato. These are the two figures that you get within it. I mean, basically, I mean, Socrates walks around Athenian society making himself a real pain to everybody in Athenian society by going up to a lawyer and saying to him, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And by the time he's finished with them, he proved to them they know absolutely nothing about what justice is. Because he says something like, all you've done is give me examples, you haven't told me what justice is. He does this with soldiers, tell me what courage is. 
Um, and all these major figures in Athenian society, no wonder he got himself put to death <laughs> by Athenian society. I think it just made himself a real pain to, to Athenian society. Um, but what is interesting about this is the question he's asking is he's looking for something which is an essential underlying quality to, for example, all forms of justice that make them forms of justice. So he's looking for an essence of something. You know, so hence the reason for the dismissing. You've just given me an example. You haven't told me what makes that form of justice, which you've just given me an example of, and this form of justice, which you've given me an example of, justice. So he's looking for and searching for some underlying essential quality. Now, I only say all of that in the service of saying, well, that's not how the Buddha is asking questions. He's not asking what it is, but how is it? How does it appear to us? How do we experience it? And if there's one thing that's fundamental to the Buddha's teaching, it's always about the authority of our own experience. Uh, the investigation. This is very, very much a psychology which is based on introspection of the subject of themselves, looking at what is going on. In many ways, meditative procedures that we engage in, all of them are introspective forms of finding out what's going on for us at this moment in time. Literally asking that question I started off with, what's going on here? Yeah, really important question to have. Not take it for granted that you know what's going on. Because if you take it for granted that you know what's going on, that you know what's going on, um, then you've kind of already answered your question. Yeah. You keep the question open by investigating. So the Buddha's methodology is one of primary investigation. Investigating the how it is for us. And what he's really trying to get us to ask the question is, how is this thing that we take for granted that we call self operating. And we do take it for granted. It's, you know, as I say, particularly if we take it in the no-self form, it becomes very, very counterintuitive. It's bad enough as it is when we think of it as not-self. However, if we push it that little bit further and say it's no-self, it just doesn't make any sense, really. Um, and actually, as a teaching, could be fundamentally quite dangerous to many people. It's the idea of the possession of, well, possession, that's a probably the wrong word to use here, but I'm, I'm saying the existence of a process which we're calling self, which allows for moral and ethical responsibility. If there is no self, it really doesn't matter what I do. Yeah. really doesn't. I can do anything. Because yeah. there's no consequences to it. Nothing to it at all. This is nihilism. This is very much something the Buddha speaks out against. And it's worth pointing out at this stage that the nihilistic response, the, you know, there is, well, no, there isn't, because that's the nihilistic response to something, leads to moral and ethical nihilism as well. It really doesn't matter what we do. Nagarjuna goes even further when we get to looking at Nagarjuna, which Rob's going to share some stuff with about Nagarjuna with you as well. Um, but actually getting hold of emptiness in the wrong way is like grasping a snake at the wrong end. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty graphic image. You know, you've picked it up by the tail instead of the head, and it turns around and bites you. Yeah. So if we misinterpret emptiness, anatta, interpret it in the wrong way, it leads to the opposite consequences of what the Buddha really has intended. 
Remember, his path is a path of what he calls Arya, of nobility. Now, that was used to designate the race of northern Indians, Arya. He turns it on its head and says, no, it isn't. It's the way that you live that makes you noble, not being born into a particular race. The head of the, you know, the kind of top of the social strata in ancient India is called Brahmana, Brahmins, as we call them in an anglicised form, Brahmanas. Brahmanas were supposedly the most noble within Indian society by virtue of their purity. The Buddha again turns that on his head and says that even the lowest person, if they live nobly in that society, will be pure. And actually somebody who is born into that social strata um, isn't pure by virtue of birth, but only by virtue of behaviour, of how they behave. Now, OK, that's all about ancient India, and you think, well, you know, that's their stuff. That's their problem, two and a half thousand years ago. Well, in a way it isn't, because there are still social stratas, and people thinking they're better by virtue, say, of the possession of wealth, knowledge, all sorts of ways of elevating themselves above others. And the bottom line, and this is why it's so important and why I'm stressing this, is because it's what you do that is important. How you live. The Buddha's path, as I said, is a path of nobility of behaviour, action and virtue. It's not this whole area of the ethical and the moral is not a kind of tack-on extra. It's vitally important if you've looked at the traditional structure of the Buddha's teaching, well, it's tripartite. Three bits to compose it. The first bit is sila, you know, morality, ethics. Samadhi, concentration, meditation. And then finally, panya, insight. You know? So the bridge, in a sense, is the development of concentration and meditation, in term, particularly in terms of concentration-type practices leading to Panya. Um, But the two other sides of it, to which the bridge is connecting it, are the insight and the ethics of it. So this is essential to the path. In fact, so much so, the 5th century commentator Buddha Gosa says, without being rooted in ethics, samadhi is pointless. Actually, I'd even go stronger... Uh, than this, you know, and much, many of you will have known that, of course, mindfulness is spoken about a lot in the Western world these days. Mindfulness without ethics is simply paying attention. That's all it is. Um, and it's not what the Buddha teaches. So, anything that undermines that ethical foundation, such as the nihilism of there being no self, is something very, very much to be avoided. Um, So it's it's important that we get this teaching clear that the Buddha is talking about. Not only that, as I said, I think this is a very dangerous teaching uh, in the sense of, for example, somebody with poor self-esteem, all sorts of psychological problems. It could be devastating. You you thought you had a self and now you haven't got one. (laughs) I'm joking about it slightly, but it's, it's very serious and I think it's kind of ends up bordering on the unethical talking about no self. We need to talk about self as process. Now, if anything, the claim I would make is that the Buddha is the first process thinker. 
is thinking through processes. And the point I nearly always make at this stage, and I'll make it again, um, because I realise sometimes some of these things you, know, you hear, but then you forget about them, so it's always worth reminding you, is that in the original languages, there's an awful lot of verb forms in the original languages. A lot of the things that we think of as nouns in Sanskrit and Pali are actually verb forms. Um, so two classic ones, sangsara and nirvana, nibbana. These are verb forms. Um, they are not places. They are ways of being in this world. You know, and often, again, the translations are, you know, the Buddha went to nirvana or attained nirvana. And it makes it like the sound has popped off to Buddhist heaven for a little bit. Um, and this is not the case, because the nibbanaing is a nibbanaing in life, or nibbanaing in life. It's an experience which is the absence of, the emptiness of, greed, aversion and delusion in that experience. You know? So the psychology of that experience is based on everything that's wholesome. And in fact, one of the translations that you can use, particularly when it was Tibetanized and moved on to its Tibetan form, the word Sangye, which is actually the Tibetan form of Buddha, actually means where everything negative has been eliminated and everything positive has grown. This is what it actually means, if you sort of break it down in the etymology. Um, what Buddha means. This is what Buddha means, where everything negative has been eliminated and everything wholesome or positive has grown. What was that word you just said, Sangye? Sangye, yeah. How would you spell oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's not that difficult, but it's uh, often it depends on how you want to pronounce it. It's S A N G Y A S, Sangye. Yeah. But if you come from the Kampa region, they pronounce it Sanje. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's the word Buddha. It's broken up. Sang is one form, and Sangye is, is the other form. So it's, again, it's compounded language. So it's worth him hearing that, because actually a lot of what the Buddha is talking about are processes, not about things. You know, and it's very ugly in English, but I'm afraid you know, sometimes it's worth doing it. You know, I did a bit of it last night with you. It's not self, it's selfing. You know, it's not sangsara, it's sangsara-ing. You know, just adding an ing on the end actually turns it into a process, a verb form in English. Now, you can't do that with everything, but you know, this gives you at least an idea that we're talking about processes, ways of being, ways of acting in this world. Yeah. So, what the Buddha really is inquiring into is this selfing process. Yeah. How it operates. Why we get gulled into thinking that it's something really solid. Because intuitively, that's how it often feels, isn't it? Particularly if you have a strong emotion. I mentioned this last night very briefly. Again, picking up, trying to draw some of those threads from last night. This idea that you kind of feel it almost viscerally sometimes, this sense of self. Particularly when there's patiga, anger there. Or a strong emotion of that sort. You know. I am being attacked. Now, let's not underestimate this because some of the things that we're going to examine here and look at, um, particularly one, sankharas, which is, again is a verb. It means formed and forming, actually. It's the third of the aggregates that make up the selfing process. Within that are lots of habitual formations within this category. 
You know, aggregate means just what's lumped together and literally aggregated together under a particular category. So under this aggregate of formations, formation sounds like it's static, but it's not formed, it's forming as well. Now, I joke about this, but often we can see how attached we are to thinking that certain aspects of ourselves are deeply embedded, almost like our nature, when somebody criticises you. Yeah. When somebody just says something very simple, like, do you know you have this rather irritating habit? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, well, you know, kind of, well, I take it lightly, it doesn't really matter any, I can possibly change doing that if you really want to. It's like you're under attack yeah, if somebody says that to you. Have you heard that it's done to you? If somebody says, you've got this, and it might not even be anything major, it might be just something really simple, and you feel, oh, I've been attacked, you know, somebody's getting at me. Yeah, that is really that viscerality of it, that, that visceral feeling that, that somehow you know, what is being pointed out is me. And I, you know, when I say it's me, what does that mean? I can't change it. Can't possibly change it. Yeah, and I'm giving you something very simple, but you know, th this is actually something we can see in many, many, many dimensions of our life of the association with certain facets as being us. Yeah. And the implication of that, as I've said, and trying to pull out of this, is that if I am this way, I can't possibly change. In fact, I don't, I don't know, I, mean, I know some of you come from other countries, but in English we have a certain expression which is, that's just the way I am. Mm -hmm. And that means I can't change. Now, what the Buddha is trying to say, well, any process is a process of change. You know, and in fact, move the process in one way, alter the sets of conditions, it will manifest in this way. Change those conditions, and it will manifest in another way. So, what are we doing here? There is a process of fixation, a process of rarefication, and this takes place from a very, very early age fixing and seeing and creating, trying to create identity for ourselves and seeing ourselves in a particular way. It probably first starts, as the French psychologist pointed out, Jacques Lacan, it probably starts the first time we look in a mirror. <laughs> or we have that wonderful gaze of the parent looking at you, you know, which makes you feel unified and whole. And actually, that's not what's going on at all. We are literally a body in bits and pieces that hasn't got anything unified about it at all. Because even sometimes at a very early stage in child development, there isn't even all the motor elements in place at that time. You know, you can see a little child moving its feet around in all sorts of directions. There's no motor connectedness there. So then we get this presented with this picture of unity from a very, very early age. You know? And so what do we go off? We go off in search of identity from that early age throughout our lives, an identity or a unity which doesn't really exist because there is no one thing underlying experience. This written large, and again I touched it on it last night, so again it's pulling you on the threads from last night, it touches on the myth of narcissus, yeah. narcissistic behaviour. Remember that mythology? Well, Lacan does it wonderfully in a paper, which I love sometimes even to read now. 
uh, in talking about basically how he thinks that apes are more intelligent than humans. Here, so what happens when you hand an ape a mirror? It'll do something like this. <laughs> and as soon as it sees nothing behind the mirror, it loses all interest. What happens with humans? <laughs> you know where I'm going. I know some of you have seen me do this before, but you know where I'm going. Forever. <laughs> or something like it. You know, so there is this deep captivation with ourselves. Yeah, and the picture it's often presented, this sense of unity that's presented by what we see. That is the myth of Narcissus. You know, it's just another way of retelling it, in a way. We fall in love with an image of ourselves. However, it's a painful image, because we fall in and drown in it. You know, remember I made that comment last night, we are drowning in ourselves. You know? um, Iris Murdoch, the novelist, used to refer to it as the great, big, fat, restless ego that sat in front of your vision, and all you got was that. So actually what you saw was not anything or anybody, but you most of the time, you know, it was like me foremost, you know, before I could get a vision, I can kind of peek around the corner occasionally, <laughs> but mostly I'm seeing myself, we even want to see ourselves in others, you know? um, and actually a lot of relationship, and this is why this is important, this is the practical dimension of this, this is why we have to see the destructive nature of this selfing process when grasped wrongly, is it doesn't create relationship with others. Can I, can I, um, of course you can. I mean, an awful lot of Buddhism, in psychoanalysis for that matter, consists um, of being able to reflect on what's going on. Mm. Um, I, I was, um, I, I saw a peacock a, a while ago, and it suddenly hit a car bumper, and the guy with me said, and he actually could see its reflection on the car bumper, mm. and he thought it was another peacock. Mm. Uh, now, just to turn your comment around, I mean, if you're a human being, you don't do it very well, but we are <clears throat> able to reflect on things. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, um, and I think actually, and, and we're talking that even right now about comprehending, mm. and there's some intelligence in understanding, there must be yeah. some unitary capacity in that we can reflect on what's good like right now we can reflect on what's going on and mm -hmm. so I, I sort of okay well I again that's been an important counter theme really to um, well again this is the idea that there's got to be a something within the process other than the process itself and if I was going to give a, a longer talk than I intend to give this evening I'd go into looking at the way all of the various mental factors function in Abhidharma psychology. Because that capacity for reflection and memory and discrimination are only certain aspects of the mind. You know, there are equally unwholesome aspects of the mind which we can get in which are unreflective. Well, know, yeah, so, yeah. Which are dominated by delusion for example, as well, our confusion, actually, I much prefer that. You know, so we have, and the, the way to think about it, it's not a very edifying image, but the way to think about it is the mind is a kind of soup of all sorts of stuff. Some of that stuff in the soup is wholesome, and some of it is unwholesome, and some of it is neither, and some of it can be both. 
Yeah, those are the four main categories. You've got wholesome, unwholesome, ethically variable and ethically neutral categories in the mind. Now, what tends to dominate a lot of the time is, is, is not that we don't have those capacities, it's that we don't utilise them enough. So the mind training that's involved in Buddhism, I speak very much from the Buddhist perspective, is the development or, let's use the proper word, because it's not meditation, the cultivation, as I said last night, of those qualities in the mind. So we all have, and we demonstrate it from time to time, for example, a capacity for friendliness, a capacity for stillness, uh, a capacity for generosity. It's not saying that they're not present and we can't reflect on them, we can't use other faculties of mind to reflect on those. It's just that we don't do it very often. Or if we do, it's to a very small circle of people that we're generous and that we are kind to, and so on and so forth. So it's actually taking the mind as a system with all of its components, and it can go either way depending on causes and conditions. And some of those, will, let's face it, will be cultural conditions, which develop certain capacities of mind. They will enhance um, certain aspects while not enhancing others. So what we're attempting to do in Buddhism, by understanding the way this selfing mind works, is to develop it in the direction of the wholesome. To actually develop it. Now, I'm saying it would be a much longer story, because actually there are 52 mental factors involved, with a possibility of 121 different forms of consciousness arising. So it's a big story that you're talking there about mental processes. Um, but what the Buddha is saying is possible, and this is the simple part of it, rather than getting into complexity, is the simple part of it, that we can develop in one way. And in developing in one way, and I think we've all probably heard this in retreats and meditations and that, people telling you, well, to let go of stuff. You know, if you've heard this on meditation retreats, you know, somebody's saying to you, well, all you've got to do is let go. Well, actually, it sounds very easy. It's a bit like telling people to relax, though. <laughs> it often has the opposite effect. <laughs> You know, what actually the Buddha is saying is if you grow one capacity of the mind, cultivate it, for example, inclining the mind, um, particularly towards the wholesome, and keep on inclining the mind, it's a bit like, again, I'm going to use a horticultural metaphor, because actually the Buddhist teachings are full of metaphors about agriculture and horticulture and all sorts of things. It was a growing economy, basically, um, based on agriculture is that it's a bit like a garden. If you want to stop the weeds coming through, well, actually, what, there's no good keep on pulling them up. Um, you often spread the seeds. What you do is you grow enough beautiful flowers to stop the weeds from coming up. <laughs> and actually, this is the case with the mind. So it's not a case of letting it go. It's a case of not leaving any space for them to arise any longer. Yeah. Now, all of this can only come about by really understanding how this selfing process in mind works. Yeah, that's part of it. Now, whatever's said in a situation like this, with me sitting here and talking to you, or Rob sitting and talking to you, or whoever it is, you've still got to go out and do the work. This is no substitute for doing the work. This is just mere, very inaccurate, often, observations to get you to examine and to engage in some fundamental inquiry. To go back to that question, what's going on here? Yeah, so this is not meant to be exhaustive. 
you know, any map that's provided is meant to be helping you, helping you to find your way around the terrain. And that is all. Yeah. So I don't know if that... Oh, I don't want to derail you, I just wanted to... No, 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 it's, it's important. such an important um, theme in Buddhism and, and well, and psychoanalysis. Yeah. But, um, anyway, uh, thank you for... Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll let it go for the moment. Yeah. But the, 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 the <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> 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 but when when you talk about reflection, though, there is another word for it in, in Pali. But it basically, is is one of the mental factors that we have the hmm. capacity to pay attention in a particular way right. to something. And now we can develop that wisely, or we can use it unwisely. You know, that same reflective attention, if you like. Mm. Now, the actual phrase that's used in Pali is Yonaso Manasakara. Now, it's wise attention, wise reflection on something. Now, as you can see, this is ethically variable because it can actually slip into unwise reflection and attention. And actually, sometimes that's what goes on for a lot of people in the West. Unwise reflection and attention can be inner critic, you know, beating yourself up about stuff. Whereas reflecting wisely is seeing what's going on, how we can develop. Yeah. Yeah, so we have that capacity, but it's, it's ethically variable and it can be used in either direction. Yeah. Very, very, very important term. Okay, I'll, I'll move on a little bit, unless anybody else has got any questions. You were about to say something about relationship and yeah. how, and I just, I was very, sort of, my ears perked up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that thread was going to go anywhere. But. Well, I hope it was going to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the thread, the really one I was really trying to say is when there is a deeply embedded, fixed ego self involved, relationship is either very, very difficult or nigh on impossible with anybody or anything. Because actually all you're looking for is a reflection of yourself. You want the other person to be a mirror for you. And that can so often happen. Now, obviously, I'm painting very, very broad brushstrokes. It would have to be much, much more nuanced to really get this. But, but I think you can probably guess what I'm, you know, gather what I'm meaning by saying that. Is if there is, you know, take Iris Murdoch's version, great big fat restless ego. And that's stuck right in front of your vision. And that's all you're seeing. Then it's really difficult to see the other person. Really, really difficult to see the other person. Or even see the world. You know, if that is at the forefront of your attention. Now, the very big fat restless ego also wants a payoff. Yeah. It wants something back, but only back on its own terms. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's a very sad affair, actually, that a lot of, there is a, not a lot of relationship around. There's a lot of talk about relationship, but not a lot of genuine relationships occurring. Because of it, because actually, I was feel for those of you who know this, I often feel that, for example, that what I see in the ordinary world is a bit like, a bit like being stuck in a Harold Pinter play. You know, if anybody knows Harold Pinter's plays, it's about people not ever talking to each other. You know, they'll say something like, you know, I feel terrible today, and they'll say, look at my shoes. Mm. <laughs> 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 you know, these shoes are killing me. <laughs> You know, things like that, it's, it's, it's not actually getting it together. 
I, again, forgive me for those who have heard it before, but I, there's a very good example of this for me. Years ago, I discovered in a, in a cartoon, and it actually said a lot. It was, it was um, a man and a woman in this cartoon sitting over a table, obviously enjoying a meal or something, and he's leaning across the table to, and talking. And above every bubble in his head, above his head, and there's lots of them, there's about 10 or 12 squares of this, it goes, me. <laughs> me. <laughs> me. And, you know, and it goes on for all this time. And then he obviously finishes what he's saying, and he leans back in the chair, and the cartoon describes her leaning across the table, and a bubble appears above her head, and it goes, me. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, who? <laughs> <laughs> So, so not a lot of communication is going on in situations like that. And I think it's, it's a very amusing way of actually showing how little relationship there often is. It's all talk about me. So me first, me second, and me third. Yeah. And this is the problem. In, in, and I'm kind of trying to put it as humorously, because sometimes I think hopefully humour gets through and makes the point here. Because this is the problem. You know, when the Buddha is talking about not-self, it's not just an intellectual problem. You know, it's not a philosophical issue. He's talking about on a very practical, on a very practical basis. What effect does thinking of yourself as a solid ego-self have with your relationships with others and with the world? You know, what other behaviours are generated by that? Well... The first thing, even from psychoanalysis, which has been mentioned, one of the things you'll know is egotistical behaviours. That's what will come out of that. What, is, what would happen if that perspective has changed? If we start to reorient ourselves in relationship to this seemingly solid thing that we possess and what we're so deeply attached to, but find so difficult to actually maintain, but basically the self is a high-maintenance thing, isn't it? These are a lot of maintenance, and these are maintenance from others as well. <laughs> and it's a very high maintenance, and it's an awful lot of dukkha attached to it for not just ourselves, but for others. It's a, it's a very much a dukkering process this process when, when we attach ourselves. In other words, just think of the difference between these two, selfless and selfish. Yeah. Now, the, the wholesome virtues in, in Buddhist practice are aimed at the emptying of attachment to self. Not that there is no self. In other words, we create a movement Let's get out of our heads and out into the world. Yeah, move out into the world. So it's a kind of emptying process. There's a lovely poem by Rilke. Some of you might know it. So it's the Eighth Duino Elegy, if you know Rilke's poetry. And it says, you know, basically, it's, I can only paraphrase it because I haven't got it in front of me. I'll try and get a copy when I come back up and read it to you. But it's basically saying human beings are very strange. You know, it says, right from early childhood, they're turned around looking into themselves. All they see is themselves. It says all other creatures look out into the open. Yeah. Yeah, it's very poetic being put. But it's the idea that we're turned around somehow self-obsessed. 
interestingly, again, as a point, um, and I'm kind of going to come back to the main sort of dimensions of the Anatta uh, teaching, but as a point that, for example, the Sanskrit Pali word for compassion, karuna, some of you will know this word, karuna. This word is actually derived from a root. All Sanskrit Pali words have roots. They're kind of grammatical fictions that tell you what the words mean, uh, or give you a clue about what the words mean. Now, the root of karuna means to turn outwards. So, literally, compassion is a turning outwards. So, you can only genuinely have compassion when you turn away from your own self-obsessions and move out into the world. Literally, and this is what we see, when we are captivated by our own selves, and that's what's happening, it's captivation. When we're captured by our own selves, we don't see others, often. It takes something very dramatic to kind of shatter that, perhaps for us to actually genuinely make that move outward into the world. So, again, an important issue arises from... You know, the difference between the self-obsession, which is self-attachment, attachment to me, I, mine, all of these things, is a consequence of that, is we don't engage in genuine relationship, and things like compassion and kindness become really difficult. You know, they don't arise naturally, you know, apart from earth-shattering, often tragedies, actually, you know, when we're literally pulled out of ourselves into the world. So, it's again highlighting hopefully the importance of getting this teaching right and understanding this teaching right, seeing what's going on. Now, one of the things that the Buddha is really trying to say is, and I've said this already but I just want to reiterate it, taking what appears to be unitary, because that's the feeling of it. The feeling of selfing is of something unitary. So the Buddha says, well, let's, let's have a look at this. Let's see what's actually going on. What would anything meaningful to be said about this self, selfing process have to have as components of it? And the most basic element of this, and the most basic way of looking at this, is the teaching of the five khandhas. So you take this unitary notion and show actually it's composed of five factors. Yeah. Part of the other reason why it's called heaps, by the way, or aggregates, because the word um, khanda or skanda in Pali and Sanskrit actually means a heap. And it was because he took a heap of rice and divided it into five piles, you know, just as a teaching aid, basically. So you have the aggregates of form, feeling, perception discrimination, formations, and consciousness. And that is the bare minimum that makes it any sense to talk about a self. A physical form, sensations arising, because the word Vedana doesn't mean feeling in the emotional sense, it means sensation that's arising although feeling is actually a very accurate translation. It just doesn't mean something completely different in these cultures. Perception discrimination, the what is going on in the ways that we you know, perceive the world and perceive ourselves. 
sankharas, well, that's more difficult, and that's actually all of the mental factors that are arising, such as factors which are positive and, unho and, and, un and wholesome and negative and unwholesome. These are all arising in this particular category. And I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to it. And then consciousness. And consciousness itself is not a thing. It's a process. It's vinyana, is the word in Pali. And anything with the nya ending on it basically means to know something. So the job of consciousness is to know. The job of perception discrimination, sanyana, is to know something. And anything with that form is generally about knowing. And then you have forms like sankara, which is actually derived from a root which means to do. So if, if our perception discrimination and our consciousness are based in the verb to know, then sankara is about doing, what we actually do in the world. Yeah, so that's the two elements that go together in the way that we deal with all our situations that arises. We know and we act in certain ways. So knowing the world in certain ways can be knowing them through categories of discrimination. Now, if they're the wholesome categories of discrimination, okay, that's fine. If they're unwholesome, well, that's not so fine. So we have, to, in a sense, two different worlds. You know, actually, more mixed than two different worlds. Um, so when the Buddha, for example, this is a clear clue to if you ever get to reading the texts, when the Buddha talks about world, he doesn't mean simply stuff out there. What he means is the world of our perceptions. Yeah. Um, there's a very famous one within the Sanyutta which is the connected discourses of the Buddha, where, the Buddha, where he's speaking to these kind of mythological characters called devas, and this deva is trying to say, I want to try and reach the end of the world, and I've been walking forever, and I can never reach the end of the world. And the Buddha says to him, well, the only ending of this world is to be found within this fathom-long carcass with its perceptions and discriminations. Yeah, so the origin of the world and the ending of the world are to be found here, within us, not elsewhere. Yeah, doesn't matter how long you tramp around the universe, as this Deva supposedly been doing, you're not going to reach the end of the world. Yeah. You only do that by looking at the way that we function yeah, and changing that way that we function. Okay, very brief, and I'm going to do it very briefly, so if I don't finish it tonight, we'll pick up on it in the next talk I give, which will be not tomorrow, but the day after. <clears throat> When we start talking about rupa, which is material form, you know, again, we're looking at process. It's the is aggregate of... Skandhas, sorry? sorry? Is it's the first of the skandhas, yeah. yeah. Would you mind very quickly giving me the five Pali names? Yeah, yeah I'm going to do this. Okay. There's rupa, vedana, sanya. Tell me if I'm going too quickly. Is that okay? Sankara, or Sankaras, if you want it pluralized, and of course then Vinyana, which is consciousness. Those are the three, the four, five terms that we've got. Rupa itself again is process. It's the process of the material form. 
what's going on in our material processes. Interestingly, in early Buddhism, and this is completely, I'm saying this because it's completely distinct from what some of you might be used to if you're more embedded in later forms of Buddhist thinking, that consciousness is always embodied. There is never disembodied consciousness. Consciousness always is attached to material form. Now that changes through the history of Buddhism. Um, The Buddha, again, is much more realist than happens um, in some of the later developments in the history. So when we start talking about Rupa, we're talking about all of the material processes, the processes of lymph and blood and bone and everything that goes up to make this material form that we, you know, that we are to a certain extent. Our body. Our body, that's right. But the first thing that we notice here, and I'll give you a quotation when I finish all this at the end, is the first thing we notice is, of course, our bodies are not under our control. You know, we can't control whether they get sick or healthy. We can take wise precautions. We can do all sorts of things to you know, perhaps minimise the possibility of getting sick, but you're not going to eliminate it. You're certainly not going to do one thing, which is eliminate the ageing process. You know, as I all too often reminded every time I look in the mirror in the morning, you know, that the, this aging process will go on. No matter how we try to arrest it, it will go on. Yeah. And so this is one of the first category, if you like, the first um, element that the Buddha says, if it's to be a true self, a real self, then it would have control over what's going on. Yeah. In the example I'm going to read you, he says to this particular person, do you think the king has control over his subjects? into punishing them and torturing them and do what he wants with them, and says, yes, do you think you have control over your body? No. <laughs> yeah. So we don't have control of it. So it's one of the elements that's going to be repeated throughout all of the khandhas, or the skandhas, here, is that we don't have control over the processes that are going on. Um, and is he also... Um Suggesting that when we think of ourselves ordinarily, mm. that we that that idea always involves some, or usually involves some idea that we, that there's a body involved. Is, is it, he's saying that that's an ordinary feature of our understanding of ourselves? That's a part of the a feature of our understanding. But to say that the body and none of us would do this, but I'm sure, is is that that that, even if we include it in the category of selfing, which is what's going to happen, we can't call it the self. It's not a, under, it's not a real self. It's not a real self, but it's part of that selfing process. Part of the selfing process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be very difficult, I think nigh on impossible, for us to think of ourselves as selves if we didn't have a body. So part of it is being embodied, our embodiment. Now, what he's really saying, he says it much more elegant than this, but you know, that if we actually take the body as being the self, well, we're in for a big disappointment. <laughs> you know, because this body is going to get old and it's going to die. Um, and the Buddha himself gets old and he dies. Yeah. 
Um, even towards the end of his life, he's making a joke about it. You know, at one point in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he says that the Tathagata, this is the way he always refers to himself, he said the Tathagata, he says, is like an old cart. He's only kept going by being strapped together in the morning. <laughs> yeah. uh, and supposedly, I mean, the Buddha reached the age of 80. It just means he reached a big age. That's all. You know, for ancient India of the period. Is he saying the selfing process sort of includes a contradiction that that um, it includes this assumption that something essential that's me that's not changing. That's right. But it also includes the idea that part of it is the body. And you look at the body and it isn't under our control. That's right. It isn't, it, it, it yeah. isn't stable. Yeah. Well, actually, I think you, you're getting the point there very much because it's very, if we take a realistic look at what is going on for us, we see that there isn't any underlying essential quality that isn't changing. We, we, we want to attribute unchangingness That's to right. the body. We want to attribute, well, even if it's not to the body, it might to be something. Something, yeah. else. something else within us. I'm going to give you probably the prime candidate for this. In the second. The second feature, and as I say, I'm whipping through these, normally I spend ages and ages going through them, but the second candidate for being a self could be that we experience like, dislike, and neither, like or dislike, in terms of our sensations that arise in the physical body and sensations that arise for us in the mind. You know? So they talk about, for example, Dukkha and Sukkha are being associated with the body. Pain and pleasure, like and dislike. Asukha are dukkha, neither pain nor pleasure. Yeah. Covers all of your physical experiences. Yeah. Pretty limited range in a way, isn't it? Yeah. You like something, you dislike it physically, or it's neither, which really is indifference almost. It's kind of a, a feeling that's not noticed, yeah, because it doesn't fall into the spectrum of like or dislike. So is the, is the self in the in the feeling itself or in the preference? So in the mm. in the sort of if our experience of red and it is the the feeling itself, and then there's the, the preference, and so my mm. sense is that the the meanness is more in the preference than in the feeling. Is that part? Mm. normally we talk about feeling and not preference? That's right. Yes, it is. The, it's the being drawn. Ultimately, of course, when we look at it in the chain of dependent origination, as I know you well know. In the chain of dependent origination, it's what follows from that, the Vedana. So it becomes in the... Oh, so it's implicit, like that sort of yeah. blob of Vedana and Tanha. That's right, yeah. Sort of. It is. It's kind of shorthand in a way when we sort of just sort of look at it as feeling here. Because what happens when we look at the chain of dependent origination is immediately upon feeling arising, Vedana arising, a sensation arising, there is craving. Yeah. And there's craving either to maintain, perpetuate, or to avoid something. And I think that's what you're meaning around asking that. It's a very good question. So yes, it's within that. And so our self is often associated with that wanting to solidify, wanting to hold on to, or wanting to avoid something. So is, is that the next um, sankara perception? Well, no, the, crave, the craving is going to be one of the sankharas. It's going to be one of the formations that we are engaging in. So the next, 
But the next one is sanyana, sanyana, yeah, which is perception. It comes under that. We're on, yeah, yeah. No, no, and we're coming to number three, which is what you were just saying about the sensation and then the reaction. There's the discrimination of it. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just go back to Mel's point about? Um, I was thinking about this the other day. So, when you when you have an overriding emotion, like real joy <coughs> or crying, something that's that's sort of really pure, mm. if that makes sense, and then you step back from that, mm. is is the fact that you that you have a physical manifestation, a problem only because of um, the formations element that then attaches to it, the, the craving. I.e., if you're physically, you've got a huge smile on your face, or you're crying, mm. are they actually problems in themselves? If you can, if you can look at them mm. and say, "Well, I've recognised that I've got this big smile on my face," can you stop it at that point, or? Are we saying that we should be so equanimous that we have no emotion at all? <laughs> well, I think that's not possible no. because you wouldn't be human. No. So I'm just trying to connect what Rohan was saying in, in the intellectual way into uh, intellectual mm. practice. Okay. Well, the first thing is when we start talking about the category of Vedana, we're not talking about emotion. We're talking about mere sensation oh, right. of something. Now. I'm not completely discounting that because actually on sensation, on the like, the raw data of like and dislike of something can be built emotion as a rationalization of an experienced feeling, a feeling tone. So if you want to put it very simply, what the Vedana is, it's a hedonic tone of experience. And that tone is generally, and that's in the polls that we will notice, are like, dislike pleasure or pain to those. And that will cover everything which is physical and mental with us. Okay. So do emotions come under five standards? Emotions will be part of what is arising in the sankharas. Yeah. So they become habitual propensities to view, be, to view things in a certain way. So dislike of something, which can be... And I'm not talking here about any rationalisation process. It's not rationalising whether I like or dislike. It's just the automatic sensation of what I get upon a perception of it. Now, we've all had these experiences, I'm sure. You just look at something and go, ugh! Or smell it. Or smell it, yes. Yeah, really. Or I mean, Yes. Yeah, so, so some things strike us, and we can't rationalise it away. We can't sort of get ourselves into hearing that as being a pleasant sound when it really strikes as being unpleasant. Yeah, or smelling something which is repugnant and trying to say, well, actually it's not. Well, we try and say it's, it's an acquired taste. Or <laughs> yes. like yeah. But to me that's totally different from raw joy or raw fear, or raw... But you see, again, you're confusing it with turning a pure primary sensation into an emotion. Now, pure joy can be based on the experience of pleasure, of experiencing that sensation of something pleasurable. You know, I look at a beautiful tree, and it strikes me in the way it's beautiful, pleasant to look at, and therefore an emotion of joy might arise. A pure experience... So, so what we're talking about is something automatic 
Whereas actually, a lot of our emotional life isn't automatic. It comes about through causal conditions. Not that this doesn't come about through causal conditions, but other causal conditions arising together. So actually, if I'm in a bad mood and I see this beautiful tree, it still might strike me as pleasant, but I see I don't have joy arising in relationship to it. So this is before we get into any of the cognitive elements, the really deep cognitive elements of how we experience. So it's a primary sensation, a tone to the way we experience. And and we just cannot help it. It doesn't matter. We have no choice in this. Again, notice there is no choice. This is where we are powerless. But is this... Are you saying we're born? You're not saying we're born with these primary sensations. So they're so changing. For me, what I'm, you're saying that we have no, we, we we make no conscious decision about whether we like it or dislike it. We just do. So, but that would be different for each person. It would be different for each person. The mix is different. Yeah, very much. And some of that will be conditioned. Um, so and the sensations are conditioned. They. Yeah. And they will change. They will change once other factors which hold them in place change. I mean, we see this, for example, you know, you can, something strikes you as being pleasant for a long, long, long time, and one day you get up and say, I really don't like that. Usually to the annoyance of people around you. Um, The taste of certain things as a child, the acquired taste that happens. It's also cultural, too. It's cultural, yes. It's a lot of it's encultured. So there's a lot of cultural conditioning in that. But there's a lot of individual conditioning, you know, from parental backgrounds, you know, from family and all this sort of stuff. But it doesn't mean it's forever in place, because it can change just like that. But if, if there was a, oh, okay, I get it. If there was a fixed self, it would be, it would be unchanging. If it was a fixed self, it would be unchanging, and it would probably be under our control too. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why the self is not fixed. That's right. Because of this. This changing element. Every element that we're talking about, all of the five things, I've given you the Pali names, I haven't described them all yet, but all of those five elements are unstable. There's no stability within them. If I think I'm stable in experiencing the world as pleasurable and unpleasurable in certain ways, then forget it, because it will change. I would always think, you know, it's almost like playing the pop song too many times. Mm. One day is you can't stand it any longer. <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah. And it's not really, really... I mean, that one's obviously in our control because it decreases the number of times we play it, but, but most it's not in our control because our experience um, isn't really under our control in that sense. Does, does, make, does this make sense? Yeah. What about the commonly used thing about being hardwired mm. to certain things. You know, yeah. the, all the, the research on neural pathways. Mm. Aren't are some of those <coughs> fixed? Yeah, some of the, well, they don't about fixed. They do change, remember, because behavior will change them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah engaging in something. Learning from, more about yeah. That. And learning and will change those neural pathways. It's not as if those are fixed at all. Mm. I think from a kind of modern perspective on why Buddhism works, it's actually working because it's a practice which does change neural pathways in the brain. It's referring to the plasticity of the brain. Um, 
you know, engage in certain behaviours and you find perhaps that your thinking will change. So that's yeah. even more um, uh, evidence of the, of the impermanence of all of this. That's right. Things that we think are, are fixed. I mean, you'd think, I mean, and many, many years ago, of course, when they started looking at the brain, they thought it was fixed. It was a structure. You can't map out structures of the brain. And then they f suddenly find, doing all these experiments, actually the brain is plastic. It moves. It's malleable. It's moldable. Yeah. Again, I think it's just kind of verification of stuff that the Buddha insightfully, intuitively understood. Yeah. That we do change and conditions will change us. Yeah. Behaviours will change. All sorts of things are engaged in. So let's forget about the idea of the fixed. Um, we're often looking, this is one of the obsessions, particularly in the Western world, one of the obsessions is looking for certainty, fixity. Yeah. Again, that goes back to the old Platonic tradition. If something was real, it was unchanging. Yeah. The word phenomena in Greek, yeah, um, the word phenomena, meant unreal. Anything that was a phenomena was unreal. Yeah. Anything that was noumenal was real, because it was unchanging. Now, now, Plato couldn't get out of the bind of this, you know, just philosophically that he couldn't discover any phenomena within the ordinary world that wasn't unchanging. There was no numeral realities in the ordinary world. So anything that was real had to be placed on another level. And then you get Platonized Christianity, which is basically doing the same thing. The real exists on a different level outside of this. I mean, this led the um, German thinker Nietzsche to say that the whole history of Western thought had been the revenge against time, you know, of thinking, thinking the temporal. Now, the Buddha is obviously not doing philosophy, but in some senses he has resonance with those thoughts. That we're often looking for certitude. Looking for certainty where it does not exist. And in fact, a lot of the, pra the practices you're engaging in, as you go through the range of practices which are associated with emptiness, you're finding actually at deeper and deeper levels, however deeper you take it, there is no certainty. There is no fixity. There is nothing which is a permanent phenomenon. In other words, there is nothing which doesn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. Mm -hmm. So all things are dependent on causes and conditions for their existence. Hence, all things are dependent on arising. Hence, all things are empty. That's the kind of demonstration that's going on here. I'm going to finish these other few quickly and then just leave it open for some questions. Sanya, this is an important one. This is perception discrimination. You know, the discriminatory bit usually gets left out in the translations. It's usually left down just to perception. Perception discrimination. This is the way that we see our world. Um, there's a technical definition, if you want it, which is that Sanya marks an object for recognition. So it's about how we learn to discriminate from babies up until old age. You know, that we have an increasingly expanded range of perceptions to a certain point and then it declines again. You know, because there are elements that are associated with Sanya which are absolutely vitally important. First is, if you're marking an object, how are we doing it? Any guesses? Naming it. Yeah, language. Yeah. Language is primary, so this is part of the linguistic faculty that we have. The capacity for marking it. You know, I look at a whole set of trees, and for, you know, as a young child, it's just trees. 
Then somebody says, there's an oak tree and there's a beech tree. And I mark it, in a sense, so that every time I now see a wood, a load of trees, I see oak tree and beech tree. And this is how we build up discriminations through the world. Now, there's another vital faculty involved in that, isn't there? Memory. memory. Yes. It's memory, isn't it? Because not, it's no good being able to mark something if I can't remember what I used to mark it with. <laughs> you know, so memory is part of its capacity. Now, I said I was going to give you the best candidate for where you think the self lies. Memory. Because actually memory is what homogenizes experience over the times of your life and makes it as if there is one underlying strand that runs all the way through it. So the fact that I can remember things that I did when I was a child and when I was an adolescent and that I did last week, or actually probably not last week, I probably can't remember most of the things I did last week. Yesterday. <laughs> or yesterday, yesterday. yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, shows you, in fact, something about memory that is very partial. That actually our lives are constructed in the sense of you, the unitariness of me running all the way through it is constructing out of partial memories. Yeah. That's how we construct that. Now, memory changes. You know, bits come into memory and they fall out of memory. Yeah. I mean, I've sometimes, and I'm I don't know whether you've had the experience sometimes being very forcibly struck by something I can remember about my past, and five days later I can't remember it at all. It's that something has come up and it's dropped out of memory again. And so we're constantly actually reconstructing ourselves out of our memories. It's a constant process. The question actually should be when you wake up in the morning, who am I today? That's the question. Or who do you want to be today? <laughs> because it depends on those memories. Uh, I, again, I'm fond of reciting the, the start of a book that some of you might know. It's by um, an English feminist novelist called Jeanette Winterson. And she said, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself the question, the question what childhood do I want to tell myself about? The happy one or the unhappy one? <laughs> yeah. And we all of us, in a sense, construct our lives out of memory and out of the narration that we put into play about past events. We put them together in certain ways. So self is construct. Yeah. It's constructed through language. Yeah. That's one of the things that we're doing, is we're constructing it. And this led the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein to say that he thought perhaps the whole idea of the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> Yeah, because it was constructed out of the way language is constructed. Yeah. I am happy. Subject and predicate and verb. Yeah. Now, there are certain locutions we use in English which are exactly of that form, but we don't go around looking for the subject, trying to conform, confirm the subject in some way. But with the self, we do because we're cap captivated by that image of it. So the self in perception and discrimination is perhaps growing to a certain point facets of memory are constructing our notions and who and what we are and often with age then memory starts to fail again see so we go from a capacity of building and growing understanding discriminating possibly 
in the kind of disaster scenario of it dropping away completely. Degenerative brain, brain diseases, of course, bring in another whole factor. Actually, people with the terrible degenerative brain Alzheimer's, they literally cannot remember who they are. Now, the Buddha is not, and this is why I say it's not no-self, because the Buddha is not recommending us to be like people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, he really is not. In other words, if self is constructed on memory, actually it's a terrifying experience for people who undergo this, to be in that state of not knowing who they are whatsoever. So reflexive memory is important, but it's not a self, because it's coming in and falling out and coming in and falling out and changing, being modified by the narratives that we tell ourselves about whatever we remember. As well. So it's a really, really important category, this. Then there are sankharas. The sankharas literally are coming from the verb to do. So they're to do with activities. It's not a permanent self, but it's our actual self. It's not a self. It's a phenomenal, it's, yeah, it's a phenomenological self. It's yeah. our recollection of and feeling of who we are and who we remember we are. That's right. But there's no permanency in that. No, it's no changing. That's right. It's a phenomenal self. That is all. And that's quite a good self to have, as long as you don't over-attach yourself to it. In other words, the moment we start thinking this is our true self, well, you might find up, wake up one morning and find it's changed. <laughs> you probably will wake up the morning and find it's changed. Yeah. So there's no fixity to it at all. And it's not under our control. Because just think how memory is not under our control. You know, bits of language come and go. Sometimes you undergo this thing of trying to think of a word for something. Yeah. Um, I mean, for those who are familiar with the whole of Proust's massive book, you know, is built on this idea of memory, you know, in search of, you know, using memory in search of reconstructing the past. And that. I was just reading before this retreat started, this new research on these mm -hmm. new drug called neuroenhancers. Mm. So they're really focusing in on different kinds of memory mm. and using drugs, um, which college students, all kinds of people are using, to re strengthen their different kinds of memories, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Yeah. I, I think, actually, the cultivation processes we engage in in Buddhism... <coughs> do something very similar. They enhance and strengthen um, the capacity to remember certain things. I, I don't think it's any accident, if you look at all of the early Buddhist traditions, memorization was a huge facet of those early traditions. You know, strengthening... Because uh, the things weren't written down. It wasn't well, that's right, it was yeah. And a lot of that we've lost the capacity to do. You know, people don't any longer for the most part, learn things by heart anymore. Yeah. I think it's, 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 a, it's a capacity. Um, and actually, this word chitta, of course, learning by heart, it's not just a mental thing, it's something which is heartfelt, too, yeah, that we can do. And it's, it's, it's something we can utilise in the future. 
Okay, I am going to quickly move on. Sankaras. <laughs> activities. The moment you start talking about activity, you start using the word that we talked about last night, karma. Because karma isn't some vague metaphysical process. Karma is just action. Actions of body, speech and mind. And sankaras really are the activities of body, speech and mind. What we're forming out of those activities. So some of them become dispositions and propensities to behave and to think and to do things in certain ways. Uh, they are, some of them, in their negative senses, and they're not all negative, are feedback loops. They're narratives which go round and round and round. Papancha is part of Sankara activity as well. So we are always constructing a world out of what we do think and speak. We're always constructing a world out of that. Now, it changes. Yeah. Because it's karma, we engage in one activity, which has a consequence, and I engage in another activity in relationship to that consequence. So I'm always engaged in forming my world. Yeah. It's, it's not as if we're kind of just passive recipients as we all know, I think if you really think about it and, and analyse what's going on for yourself, that we're all engaged in building up our world. In the iconography it's associated, it's associated with this teaching in Tibetan Buddhism, you find the potter actually illustrated moulding pots. That's how we mould our lives. We're constantly engaged. And how we do it is through our activities of body, speech and mind. Yeah, and those are... Those are Reprocessed again and again. But I thought also intention was in there. Intention is in there. Chetna is yeah. mind. Yeah. 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 The fifty-two mental factors are in there. Right. But so it's not just speech and action, or um, it is still also, when you say mind, you're talking about intention then. I talk well. One of the factors is intention. Okay. Yeah. But it'd be the wholesome mental factors only. Well, we can't have intention without the speech or the action. No. Well. The intention is what then gives rise to speech and action. But you can have a, a feeling of intention without acting yeah. or speaking on it. Yeah. And in many cases, as I was saying last night, some of those intentions will not be conscious intentions. They'll be formed on an unconscious level or something we're not conscious of. And so it's, a, it's actually a huge category. Because in Abhidhamma you'll be looking then at 52 mental categories, the mental factors that actually uh, mould experience, the whole of experience. Rob, Rob said something about uh, intentions support the sense of self, and the sense of self supports the intentions, and I think you said something slightly along the same lines. Mm. Yeah, that's right. In Cli I mean, there's a very, there's, for those of you not familiar, it's worth looking at something called the Honeyball Sutta. Mm -hmm. The Honeyball Sutta. The Madhupindika Sutta, it's in this collection, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. Very, something very important, because what the Buddha is saying is what you think becomes the inclination of your mind, how you incline your mind becomes your life. Yeah? And I think we can see that. So if you incline your mind in a particular way, through thinking processes, then if it's unwholesome, and I think something, then give rise to doing it, that can become a lifetime habit. 
Yeah. Equally, if I do something wholesome, and I think most of us probably had this experience, sometimes if you have a value that you don't want to transgress, and one time you transgress it, it becomes far easier to do it and to keep repeating it, to keep repeating that transgression. John, where does attention fit in? Because like, you were saying, what, is, it, is this part of the, the This would be part of this as well. Right. Perhaps next time I'll talk a little bit about it, but I don't want to go into too much detail because it's too complicated. I don't really want to overburden you with the complexity of the kind of Buddhist cycle. But it is, I think it's quite important because what you have is attention as an ethically variable factor. Mm. Now, when most people are using the word mindfulness, what they're actually really speaking about is attention. They're not actually speaking about mindfulness. Attention is ethically variable. It can take a wholesome form or it can take an unwholesome form. Mindfulness is always a wholesome mental factor. It can never be unwholesome, whereas attention can be unwholesome. You know, so, for example, I've often heard people say, you know, well, you know, mindfulness, you know, somebody can go off and be incredibly mindful and be a mindful burglar. <laughs> what they're really talking about is somebody who's really trained themselves and really paid attention to what they're doing, you know, but they're using it for unwholesome purposes. Equally, I can place my attention on something wholesome uh, and develop it for wholesome purposes. So it's variable, moves, depending on the object. What's your, what's your definition of mindfulness then? Uh? Well, mindfulness is defined as always as, as a wholesome mental process, which is to be aware of something right. happening. What's the now, Sanskrit isn't to remember? Mindfulness. Yeah, uh, it's sati, sati, Pali. Mm -hmm. It's smirti in Sanskrit. And it has, again, within mindfulness, the word sati or smriti actually has the connotation of remembering something. So when I apply mindfulness, I'm remembering a certain quality of mind. I'm remembering, for example, that I am watching the breath. Not daydreaming. It's mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. Yes. So it's you know mindfulness has can have a, a range of objects, but it always has this connotation of remembering something. So mo modern Western Buddhism then has kind of almost changed the meaning of that word. Yeah. It's used in a very different context from how the Buddha used it. That's right. It, it, I think I mean what's what's actually happened is um, I think there's a lot of what I call popular usage of the word mindfulness. It's become quite sloppy. It's a very very precise word within the um, Abhidhamma texts in particular, because when there is a moment of mindfulness, of genuine mindfulness, all of the other wholesome mental factors arise at that moment. So there is non-hatred, non-greed, for example. There is self-respect, there is respect for others, there is equanimity, what's called tatra which is actually in the middleness, not being swayed either way by anything that um, strikes you as repulsive or anything that strikes you as attractive. There is no sway, swaying at all. It's just it's another synonym for mindfulness. So all these factors are present. There's a lot of others as well, but those are the important ones yeah. that are present. So when we use mindfulness, we're using it in a very specific way. Um, and when people have that genuine moment, a lot of psychological changes evoked in doing that. Final one, Vinyana. Time to 
the connotation of remembrance, yeah, of remembering something. Um, that goes, but again, it's the Buddha's use of what was already within Indian culture at the time, because there was classes of texts in India, and some of them were called Smirti. And the Smirti text was something like the Mahabharata, or the Ramayana. Uh, these were remembered texts. They weren't revealed like the scriptures. You know, they were remembered. And so it always had this connotation of remembering. And actually, if you want to see it, I think it's quite a good word, actually, in English, because what remembering, if you think about it, if you about remember or recollect, it means taking out of something being scattered and fragmenting and uniting it again into some kind of wholesomeness. Yeah. So it was opposite to the Vedas? Yeah, it's opposite. The Vedas are, yeah, Shruti. Yeah. Shruti as opposed to Smriti. Shruti, yeah. yeah. Shruti texts are revealed texts, literally heard texts, and Shruti means heard. Yeah. So, final one, Vinyana, and then I'll see if you have any questions and depart. Because <laughs> this has gone on a lot longer than I thought it would. <laughs> okay, the final one's Vinyana, consciousness. Well, the Buddha's great discovery that consciousness was not a thing. Again, that was a big statement in ancient India because actually reality was associated with consciousness. Yeah. So when you started talking about Atman in ancient India, then the definition of Atman was it was unchanging and it was consciousness. It was pure consciousness. It was defined as. Um, the Buddha said he couldn't find any such thing as pure consciousness because consciousness always arose with an object. There was never just consciousness around. There's always an object. So in other words, in our experience, when we actually begin to examine our experience, I'm always conscious of something. There is never just consciousness. There is consciousness of a fear, an anxiety, a joy, um, this book. No matter what it is, there's always a consciousness of something. So it means, actually, consciousness and world are codependent. They arise together. When somebody's unconscious, literally, physically, mm. in a coma. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean, it just means that reflexive consciousness isn't there. For example, even somebody in a very, very deep, dreamless sleep or in a coma state will attempt to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the body is sending information to the brain and the brain will send reflexes so back. There is some consciousness, there is a consciousness there of yeah. something. That's right. Yeah. So, for, my, for example, in deep sleep, and we all do, is it? You know, when you're in a deep, dreamless sleep, you know, there is a feeling and experience of, say, uncomfortableness, which will make the body shift. And that. So that's a conscious experience. It's just that we are not conscious of it at that moment. The consciousness is still there. Yeah. Is there a difference between awareness and consciousness? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it tonight, though. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> About consciousness, don't you need a third element, which is the self? To be conscious? Well, somebody has to be conscious, something has to be conscious, not a phenomenon. But the conscious is just a, the process, but there, there, there's a need for a self. No. <laughs> you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? But the consciousness doesn't need a self, because actually the whole notion of self is predicated on the codependent functioning of those five factors we've talked about. 
So when we're talking about self, actually, it's just shorthand for saying those five processes interacting together. Rather than there is something over and above which is separate from those processes. Now, none of those five processes can be identified as being the self. So the self is always a nominal entity. It's, It's an umbrella term which captures a lot of experience. And as I say, the five khandas isn't exhaustive. You can break it down a lot, lot further. And that's what the Abhidhamma does. It breaks it down. Finer and finer distinctions. Each of them demonstrating there's nothing over and above all of these processes that are going on. And is it all of them together, or can it be two of them working, or does it have to be all five? It'll be all of them working together. It'll be all of them working together. For there to be a concept of self. That's right. In very different ways in varying ways that different you said the five processes interacting together yeah. so they interact together in complicated ways and yeah in, in very complex in very complex ways yeah so I mean, uh, if you take if you take the abhidharma thing again I'll, I'll i'll mention very briefly some of these factors in the next talk i give but in the abhidharma um of the early pali abhidharma anyway what you get is a very particular picture of the way all this is functioning and it's it's massive. It's massively complex, which is really why I don't want to go there. Is that why you call it a system? Yes. It goes back to the system, yeah, goes back to the system idea. Mm-hmm. Is that what you have is 52 mental factors and, well, at the minimum, 89 different forms of normal consciousness mm-hmm. which arise with those mental factors. And what the Abhidhamma seeks to plot is every permutation that consciousness can arise in with the various mental factors. So it becomes a complete map of how the mind works from a particular perspective. This is, this is what it's trying to do. Now, if you add in then meditative experience associated with jhana, not only do you get 89, you get 121 forms of consciousness that are operating here. Now, some of those, will, some of those factors just have to be present. We cannot function as individuals without some of those factors being present. Other ones are, and this is the ethical point again, and this is where I'm going to finish, is the ethics of it is in identifying the wholesome mental factors and cultivate them. Identify the unwholesome mental factors and let them go. I'm saying letting them go, but actually the process of cultivating will cause a decrease of the others as well. Now, there's a word for this, and it comes in the Eightfold Path. It's called right effort <laughs> for that process. And that's exactly what you're engaging in. Yeah? And I can say more about that at some point, probably. But it's a big, big map of what's actually happening. And uh, I don't think this is the place to go into it. But the thing is, what it's showing is process, and where you have process codependent factors arising and creating all of this various geography of the mind, then you have emptiness. You have no fixed thing within it. Gosh, that was a long time tonight. (laughs) The Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is canonical. It's part of... It's attributed to the Buddha. Um, But historically, I mean, this is from a scholarly point of view, um, the Abhidharma probably started to be formed in the Buddha's own lifetime. 
and then after his death it was an attempt to systematise the teaching, hence the word system again, systematise the teaching by extracting everything out of the sort of material. Yeah, because obviously if you go through something like this, middle length discourses, what you don't get is any order to the teachings. I mean, it's just you know, him teaching one person here and another person here and giving a group of monks a discourse and things like that, and there's no system to it. And so what the what was probably done with the Buddha's permission in his early lifetime was the attempt to try and systematise the teaching, and that continued after. And actually much of where the, some of the talks will be going is actually looking at, in some senses, what I call pro and contra the Abhidhamma, what was attempted in the Abhidhamma, you know, both as practice, which is obviously where we really want to stay in this, but also as theory, often in Buddhism as well. So what you're saying is these 121 different sorts of consciousness are scattered throughout the whole lot and someone's gone through them and picked out, oh, there's one and there's one and they've written them down separately. Yeah, that's right. They've, they've pulled them all out. So the Buddha would have talked about each one of those? <coughs> he would have... Well, you'll get mention of most of the different types of forms. Certainly you get all the mental factors within there, all the mental factors being spoken about specifically. Consciousness is defined in the way I defined it as being consciousness of something. Then it comes into whether the consciousness is prompted or unprompted and all sorts of other ways of looking at it and defined. And most of these can be found implicitly within these texts. So it's an enormous undertaking to actually go through it and draw all this stuff out. It's often said that it, it, it caused the arisal of the Mahayana. Is that, do you believe that? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Not at all. Um, it didn't, that didn't happen. I mean, even, I mean, even Mahayana groups or groupings mm-hmm. also have Abhidhammas as well. Yeah. Um, it was, basically, if you want to hear what the Abhidhamma is, the Abhidhamma is, or the Abhidharma in a Sanskrit form, is a vast report on experience. Yeah, it's a compre- or attempts to be a comprehensive report on experience. Now that, and this is why I think personally I think it's important, is because then it gives you a very, very good clue to, if you like, mapping out what's going on for you um, in meditative experience in particular. So it actually becomes, um, I don't know, the ordnance survey maps that we have in England of the topography of the mind. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm still using maps. <laughs> I'm uncertain of technology. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's that process of actually defining the topography of what you're going to experience here. Now, bear in mind though, and this is what I'd say perhaps is really the final words for this evening, is that any map or any GPS system, doesn't matter, you've got to be moving, you've got to be travelling, you've got to be tramping the ground. You know, for it to be meaningful. I think the history of Buddhism, and this is partly what's going on in Mahayana Buddhism, particularly with Nagarjuna, is saying actually an awful lot of people weren't doing that. They were getting caught up in the scholasticism mm-hmm. of the material and not actually ever engaging in doing the practice. Because you know? in its own right it can become an, a scholarly endeavour. So there was this attempt, and I think this is just humans, you know, whether they're Indians two and a half thousand years ago or now, you think it's far easier to think about it. Think your way to reality instead of actually doing something extremely practical, um, which is obviously the, the cultivation process, the bhavana. Yeah. 
Okay, I will finish there. So, any quick questions, and I'll run. <laughs> I'm get, well, it's going to be question and answers tomorrow. So, is there anything that's left over? Um, then it can be revised tomorrow, and that'll be at seven thirty tomorrow. Yeah, I'll put it up on the wall. Just a quick one: English definition of scandal. Aggregate. Mm-hmm. And that's mental factors. When you say mental factors, is there a? There is a Pali word, and if you want it, it's called chatasika. C-E-T-A-S-I-K-A. Sounds great. Chitas. Chitas. Maybe this is the wrong thing to ask at this point. Is there a synonym for emptiness? (laughs) Is there another... Because you you kind of did like, you know, just five minutes ago, you said, do this, do this, do this, and... Codependent factors arising, and therefore there is emptiness. Yeah. Oh, it's like my QED, you say. Yeah. Say what? Not self. No, yeah. Well, that's. Mm. I, I was. I didn't get to that word emptiness after that. Well, there is. There is a. There is a. If you're going to use a, an English word, you'd have to hyphenate it. And I often prefer this word because it just sounds very negative sometimes. But it's no thingness. No thingness. Because this is what it's really talking about. There are not things. There are processes, but there are not things. Some processes just happen to be um, slower than others. So, for example, when we look at the mountain, we're looking at a very slow process. But, as we all know, the the Himalaya continue to rise by an infinitesimal amount each year. human beings change a lot quicker and their minds change extremely quickly. So we're looking at a very, very fast process when we look at sentient creatures, generally. Um, But it doesn't mean that the rest of the world, I mean, obviously, uh, contemporary physics would say this, you know, the world is a process. But equally, as we understand, say, the world from, say, a modern perspective of physics which will say, actually, when you look at solidity, what you're actually seeing is more space than solidity. Well, it still doesn't stop me from putting my cup on the table. <laughs> you know, Equally so, understanding that the table is empty of intrinsic existence still doesn't stop me from utilising it. You know, and we'll go into this a lot more. This is very, you know, emptiness should leave the world in place, but from a completely different perspective. Just to make this crystal clear with the self, the Buddha was saying it's not that there's a self and it's not that there's no self, mm. it's that there's selfing, there's like yeah. the, the, this the, uh, process yeah. of self. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's the middle way. Right. Yeah, the, other way, the other way, if you like, is much more philosophical. It's because it's about the establishment of something ontologically. You say, ontologically, it's real or it's non-existent. And we say, I'm not having any of that. That's, that's complete nonsense. I'm not getting into what the game actually was going on in ancient India at that time. Because there were, there were people that believed in the reality of the self as being a fixed thing. These were the... Uh, Who were they? Well, they're basically, uh, it was basically coming out of the early teachings of the Upanishads. Of uh, which um, two, if not three, were extant at the Buddha's time, uh, and he seemed to be very, very familiar with them. Because as you go through the text, and if you know the Upanishads as well, then you see him quoting from them, often making fun of them, 
you know, in, in the positions that they offer. Um, and then there were the deniers of this idea. So there was either self or there was nothing. And they were ethical nihilists as well. And the Buddha is trying to steer that middle way between this kind of philosophical argumentation by presenting, I think, what I call a real picture of how we operate. So who were the no self of the nihilists? They were a group called Charvakas in Sanskrit. Um, and basically their philosophy is, is eat, drink and marry and nothing comes of it. Or <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, not a lot of change in some ways <laughs> of that. Um, but you've got these different groupings. And for, again, those of you who are interested, if you want to see all of the positions that were around in ancient India at the period of the Buddha, there's a very famous sutta right at the beginning of the long discourses. It's called the Brahmajala Sutta. It's called the Net of Views. <laughs> Brahmajala. It's Brahma, B-H-R-A-M-A-J-A-L-A. Brahmajala. But we're not allowed to go to the library, remember? <laughs> <laughs> well, certain things I'll be doing some copies of for things to read as well. But, but in that particular sutta, he lays out 62 different philosophies that were extant at his time in order to try and refute them. Only. Only. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, uh, how did you link already the idea of emptiness with the five calendars? Well, all of them are empty of self. And self isn't to be found within any of them, in other words. You know, so when I look for a self within material processes, I won't find it. What I'll find is material processes. <coughs> When I look for a self within feeling, I won't find feeling. And even all of them placed together are empty of the self, other than as a nominal, nominal entity. Mm -hmm. yeah. So at the end, it's just phenomenal self. It's it? just phenomenal self, yeah. That's right. Like a rose bush. Like any other phenomena. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yes, it, in a way you could... Yeah, I think it's a really nice way of putting it. It's probably a good place to finish because, you know, in saying that, what you're saying is actually human beings are really at no different level from any other phenomena that arises in this world which are dependent on causes and conditions. Now, for example, you might fiddle around with the soil and turn the colour of the rose into a different colour. That's the causes and conditions which cause the flowering of the red rose or the white rose. Yeah. Equally, we can fiddle around with the conditions that make us what we are in our processing, and we get different selves. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you've all had too much now. I'm really... I was going to... Oh, right. Can you stand another two minutes? I'll read... I mean, because this is actually... Basically saying the same stuff, but from the Buddhist perspective. In this, in here. That said it all. <laughs> Rod never finished before 9.25. Didn't I? Okay. <laughs> I'm in good company then. You're getting off easy. <laughs> <laughs>
He's in dialogue with a giant, basically, what's called a Naganta in, in the text, somebody called Agavesana. And he's been asking him all sorts of questions. And Agavesana says, you know, the self is a permanent phenomenon, it can be found within the body, it can be found within feelings and everything else. And the Buddha just kind of puts him through this grilling. Here and it says, and now I'm going to read you one section just to give you a flavour. It says, What do you think, Agavesana, when you say thus material form is myself? Do you exercise any power over that material form to say, Let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? No, Gotama. <laughs> pay attention, Agavesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards. Nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. <laughs> What do you think, Agavesna? When you say, thus feeling is myself, do you exercise any power over that feeling in myself? That feeling is myself? Do you exercise any power over that feeling as to say, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus? No, go to my... <laughs> Pay attention, Agavesna. Pay attention. How you reply. What you said before doesn't agree with what you just said now. Nor did what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agavesna? When you say thus, perception is myself, do you exercise any power over this perception? As to say, let my perception be thus, let my perception not be thus. And of course you're getting the picture, it's saying the same thing again and again. Just going through the categories. Basically shredding him. <laughs> you know, by taking, showing him through his own illogical conclusions. Um, and if you want a reference for that, that's... Yeah, it's the sutta, it's sutta number 35, the Chulasachika sutta, which is the small sutta devoted to Sachika. Yeah. So it gives you a favourite, and the style is very ancient, you know, so don't be put off by the style when you read these things, lots of repetition, but um, it gives you a flavour of somebody really engaging in this inquiry. Well, at least he was honest with him, he said no, he could have argued with him too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. But you often find the Buddha doing this, leading people down, you know, getting them to say what their position is and then undermining it. Yeah. So at least I have a choice. Okay.